Tēnā koutou, no mai, haere mai, welcome to q and I'm Jack Tay. Tonight, a new strategy to address our shameful rate of Māori imprisonment. We're just trying to make sure that when people are emerge, that they are, they are better people than when they went into prison. The two leading candidates to run our biggest city are here, John Tamahiri and Phil Goff, both have grand plans. You can judge them for yourself. And Agriculture Minister Damien O'Connor has tonight revealed to me the new costs in store for New Zealand farmers. And he didn't hold back when I asked him about Fonterra's fail. Look, I think if the company performs, those salaries are well deserved. But the fact is that they haven't been performing. Um, you know, they should all take a cut at the moment. Plus, 35 years on, how should we judge the revolutionary economic reforms of the 1984 government? I sat down with Sir Roger Douglas, still a passionate follower of politics. Those reforms are still in place, uh, despite a lot of uh, my former colleagues like Helen Clark and others uh, decrying them, they didn't change one of them. But we begin tonight with big changes inside our prisons. The government has announced a new strategy aimed at reducing the number of Māori in New Zealand prisons. Hōkairangi will mean more whānau visitation and correction staff will undergo a cultural sensitivity course. But how can tikanga Māori exist inside prison when prisons are fundamentally a Pākehā concept? I sat down with Corrections Minister Kelvin Davis and I began by asking about the alleged Christchurch gunman after the fiasco last week where the gunman was able to post out white supremacist propaganda, what parts of his incarceration are now being reviewed? Oh, well, we, exactly that. You know, we have to look at everything uh, to do with how he is being held, um, the conditions he's being held in. You know, we've got a, a balancing act be, between uh, caring for him under the Corrections mm -hmm. Act and our international obligations and um, making sure that, you know, we don't, um, you know, he doesn't litigate against us. Uh, Are you concerned we, that might be an issue? Well, it's the, it's the balancing act because we don't want to give him more attention um, that he's already got. Yeah, so, so when you say, though, that you, you're reviewing every aspect of his incarceration, is that contact he might have had over the last few months? Oh, it's, you know, who he's in, who's entitled to visit him. Um, you know, look, absolutely everything. We're, we're going to no, leave no stone unturned because the most important thing is is, is the safety uh, of the community, mm -hmm. of the nation, of the public, not just here in New Zealand, but also internationally as well. Who is entitled to visit him? Uh, he has approved visitors, and at the moment his only two visitors are uh, his uh, members of the family and his legal people. Who are the members of his family? His mother and his sister. Have they visited him on several occasions? Uh, I, I think once. Right. How long did they visit him for? Oh, look, I, I don't know the details of that. Um, you know, I'm not sure uh, how, how long the stay was for, but um, they have been to visit. Do you expect he will have uh, other people who are approved to visit him? Uh, look, I don't know. That's an operational matter for corrections, mm. but uh, I don't think that there'll be, um, um, there'll be many more people who would be entitled to visit. Let's talk about Hawkeye Rangi, your hugely ambitious goal to lower the number of Māori prisoners from 52% of New Zealand's prison population to 16%. Do you have a time frame within which you want to achieve that goal? Well, look, the thing is, is um, everybody's asking about uh, targets. What I don't want to do is say to Māori, like, a broad overarching strategy, but now we're going to tell you what the what uh, the measures are and the success criteria and all those sorts of things. That's something that we have to work out alongside Māori, because Māori have been telling us, don't turn up uh, mm. with your flash track.
and then tell us what you're going to do with us. Work it out with us. And so that's what we've got to sit down and do. The Hokairangi is a broad strategy, but mm. the implementation plan and the finer details, they'll be worked out in time alongside Māori. You know, we've got to challenge the status quo, the way things have always been done, because we know it hasn't worked for our people. The correction CEO says it'll take generations. That's realistic, isn't it? Uh, generations to reduce it to um, that level. Look, I hope it doesn't take generations, but you know it is going to take some time. And you know the thing is, is that corrections is mm. up for this. This is the first government department that's actually said, "Hey, um, Maoris, um, we've been getting it wrong for decades. We now know, or we now acknowledge that we need your help to work things out." You know, you know there's so many people who are, are in prison. Mm. Uh, I was there in Christchurch prison the other day. A guy, a young guy, 22 months on remand, he said, look, I'm just pleading guilty because I just want to get out of here. So he hasn't, you know, these are some of the, the stories uh, of people who are actually, uh, you know, they're the lived experience. And we've got to do better uh, for people. We want people to come out of prison, mm. better people than when they went in. Sure, but how can you reduce those numbers from 52% of the po prison population to 16% without addressing the root causes of offending in the first place? Well, that's right. But look, I'm responsible for corrections. I'm responsible for the, the well-being of people once they enter into the prison until they leave and then... Uh, because maybe on probation uh, afterwards. But you see what I'm but, saying here? This is essentially an ambulance at the bottom of the cliff solution. And surely, if you want to reduce the population that dramatically, from 52% to 16%, it can't simply come down to how you treat these people once they're inside the system. Well, if we treat them well on the inside and then they go out, they're supported on the outside and they don't go on to reoffend, that will help. But they but should never have been on the inside in the first place, is the point, Minister. Well, that, and that's exactly what our government's whole strategy is, you know, whether we're looking at, um, uh, you know, helping parents, um, helping uh, young children, uh, our health, our mental health mm. um, policies, everything that we're doing is designed I, I just, to stop people going into prison in the I, first I just, place. I just want to read you a, a quote from uh, People Against Prisons Aotearoa who say of Hawkeye Rangi, teaching someone the words to tutera mai in their prison cell won't fix the social and economic inequality that put them there in the first place. Hokairangi isn't about that um, shallow, thin veneer of Māori culture. This is about working with Māori uh, in depth. We've spoken to prisoners, mm. we've spoken to their whānau, we've spoken to experts, academics, we've looked at data, we've looked at um, papers, and, and what Māori are telling us is that work with us because they are our people and we need to do things and, differently. And what does it tell you about the current system? Is the current system racist? Uh, look, there will be parts of it that are racist, but that's what I'm trying to do, is to make sure no, that you, it you're actually... You're looking at it as a, as a whole now. I mean, you just need to look at those numbers. 52% of our prison population are Māori. That is a national disgrace. And you're saying that we can dramatically change the system. I want to know, is the current system, as it stands, racist? Look... Uh, I believe that there are parts of the system that are extremely racist, and that's what we're doing. That's why we're saying to Māori, work with us. And what? Corrections is, is taking the bull by the horns. they would be the first government yeah. department to actually say, Māori, we need to really work, work with you, walk alongside you, and get this right what, for our what, people. What, if, if parts of the system are extremely racist, what parts of the system do you think are the most racist at the moment? 
Well, you just you just need to look at the numbers again. Um, you know, why is it that uh, Māori are uh, overrepresented? Over, you know, they're prosecuted for um, similar crimes that I mean, other people. I mean, some people, people will say say that it's because they are committing these these crimes. Well, you know, and we can go back and, and talk about how uh, history has uh, impacted on um, outcomes for Māori. We can we can talk about all those sorts of things, but Hokairangi is about actually looking at the correction system and making sure that um, it works and mm. it is effective for our people. So, so you're saying there that, that you see there that that you can look at Māori as sometimes being convicted of crimes that people of other ethnicities are not convicted of and therefore that Māori are overrepresented in our prison population, as well as providing training to correction staff, should we be training police? Oh, look, there's, there's all aspects uh, of the system that can be improved on, but my responsibility mm. is for corrections, uh, and I'm making sure that corrections uh, from now and into the future is going to actually work alongside Māori to make sure uh, that we get the best outcomes for Māori, because, look, Everyone benefits. We, we spend uh, over $100,000 a year per person to lock them up, when we should be actually, uh, you know, we shouldn't be spending that. We should be looking at other alternatives. There will, uh, there will sorry, Matt, to interrupt, Minister, there, there will inevitably be people who are watching this interview right now who say this government is determined to reduce the number of people in prisons because of the fiscal impact that it has, because of the social impact, but essentially you are being soft on crime. You are making our society more dangerous by putting these people back in it. What do you say to that? No, th that's not true. Uh, you know, what we have to do is make sure that uh, there all, those people who should be in prison will always be, will, will be in prison. You know, uh, people are losing their liberty. That's the punishment. But we've got to make sure that people aren't traumatised by their experience in prison and they emerge from prison worse off and worse people than when they went in. We're just trying to make sure that when people are emerge, that they are, they are better people than when they went into prison. That's Corrections Minister Kelvin Davis. Coming up, has Fonterra failed? Agriculture Minister Damien O'Connor doesn't hold back on what he thinks of its former management. And the man behind New Zealand's neoliberal revolution. 35 years on, how should we judge Roger Nomics? But next up on Q&A, we know some of you get a little sick of hearing about Auckland sometimes, but more than one and a half million of us live there and it's our business heart. These two gentlemen, Phil Goff and John Tamahiri, are the leading contenders to be Auckland's next mayor. We'll debate their plans for the super city next. Kia ora, welcome back to Q&A. Auckland, Tamaki Makoto, the city some of you love to hate. Has our biggest, our, our biggest city has more than a third of New Zealand's population, accounting for more than a third of our GDP, with some supersized problems to match. In the coming weeks on Q&A, we'll be looking at council elections around the country, but we start tonight with Tamaki Makoto, Auckland. We can't fit all of the mayoral candidates here tonight. You can find out more information about them online, but we're joined by the two leading contenders, incumbent Mayor Phil Goff and John Tamahiri. Tēnā kōrua. Thanks for being with us. Mr Goth, I'll start with you. Yep. Why the hell would anyone want to be Mayor of Auckland? <laughs> because it's a fantastic city. I, I was uh, born and bred in uh, Tamaki Makoto. Uh, my kids uh, live in the city. My grandchild lives in the city. This is a fantastic place to live and I want to make it better. Uh, and I think about my granddaughter and the world that she grows up in and what legacy we and our generation leave for her. Uh, I want to make it better. That's what motivates me. That's what gets me out of bed five o'clock in the morning every morning and, and through to work. John? 
Ely used to work at five o'clock in the morning so he'd get through the congestion. Look, <laughs> <laughs> look, look, get look, on to that. Yeah, moment. yeah of course. Yeah. Now, look, look, um, we've got a, a major opportunity here, and um, we need some strong leadership determined leadership uh, to take us through to the next level of our growth and at the moment we're caught in gridlock you live in Auckland you understand that you have to walk past and over homeless uh, to work here just down the street we've got major problems that need fixing very quickly and um, on my watch and my generation uh, I'm not leaving that that poor legacy uh, to others and uh, I'll step up Okay. I, I want to start by considering a report from PwC in May of this year which found that Auckland is the only one of 11 Australasian cities to have falling discretionary income across the last decade. The main culprit, surprise, surprise, is housing. Mr Tamahiri, do you see it as the council's responsibility to create more affordable housing? Our council is uh, lucky enough to have some significant strategic land holdings in brownfields. So that means it's closer to um, infrastructure already in place, it's closer to transport nodes, and so it must play a leading role, uh, particularly in the provision of social housing. And um, the private sector can look after more of the affordable housing. Uh, and this is why I'm standing, one of the reasons why I'm standing, because, um, you know, Mr. Goff capped it. And you, you've got to be very careful when you start capping and social engineering uh, in your city. Would you support the development of the land near Pukekoi that's in dispute? Uh, in Pukekoi? Yeah, uh, near Pukekoi. Yeah, look, in Pukekoi, um, I don't have a problem too much. Uh, the question is, 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 are we using uh, far too much uh, of our productive land mm. uh, to build over the top of? If you look at any other major city in the world, New York, uh, Melbourne, Sydney, uh, all cities are positioned on the most productive lands and they tend to grow over the top of them. Uh, we are doing exactly the same. So we're going we're to have to have some uh, buffers uh, and um, I don't think the unitary plan covers that off at all well. Mr Goff, what will you do about the housing shortage? Yeah, well the good thing is that the situation described by PwC is changing and why is it changing? First of all we've got the unitary plan that creates uh, theoretically uh, a million extra building sites. So we've, we've got the land to meet the demand so it's not being demanded uh, uh, the price being demand pushed up. We have in the last year uh, consented 14,000 houses. We've provided certificates of compliance to probably around 11,000 houses. That's the highest number on record. We have actually consented in the first six months of this year more than the entire number of houses that were consented in the whole of 2009 and 10 put together. So at what point will we say the housing crisis in Auckland is over? Uh, when we, we, we're now almost at the point where we're building enough houses to meet the growth, but we've got a backlog of about 45,000 houses and we need to meet that. We also need more social housing. Now, unlike what John says, social housing has always been provided by central government. Uh, you know, if we've got 20... The central 20, government has no, plans for social housing. No, 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 sorry, no not you're, you're asking me a That's question. not true. That's it, not true. It, no, no, it you is can't. true. And we'll come I, back I can, to, I can yeah. tell you, you it's absolutely it. true. We provided housing for the elderly years ago until a former Mayor John Banks privatised all of the Auckland Council houses, and we won't make that a mistake again. We are providing housing for the elderly. Mm. We're also working hard on the homelessness. We've housed in the last two years a thousand people off the street, out of cars, out of emergency mm. housing, through an organisation I, I chair the steering group okay. of called Housing First. What do you want to say, Jeff? No, look, I, I don't. I think 
that's nonsense. I, I, what, what we know and what Aucklanders know is that that's not true uh, because we have to live with it. I'm, I'm here. I've had, actually had to go to the Human Rights Tribunal to file a claim against this mayor because he's capped social housing. And that, that, prejudices, and that prejudices our elders. I'll, well, look, it's okay, a puppy toy. Okay. Okay. Shall we, shall we, shall we okay. get to that discussion if you want to have that discussion? Because everything he said is untrue. Okay, okay, we don't have time for that. We, yeah. we need to talk about traffic because yeah. I think everyone would agree that congestion is a significant issue. Yep. It's something we all uh, mm -hmm. need to consider in Auckland's future. Mr Tamahiri, you have promised an 18-lane mm. harbour bridge. Mm. Is that a cure for congestion? Oh, well, uh, the arterial route that we've got in Auckland is predominantly central government mm. funded and has to be. Uh, this is one of them. If you want to break the gridlock in the Auckland... central government would pay for this? It's, a, it's New Zealand Transport Agency. But how route. much would it cost? Between two to four billion dollars on my estimates. No. But Where do your estimates that's, come from? That's, that's too University, hang on. Yeah. The engineering, uh, uh, a professor at the University the of Auckland, uh, Charles Clifton. Okay. Anyway, um, yeah. having said that, he's been sitting for three years and done nothing. The people on the North Shore, uh, Albany moving to Wellsford, mm. want a result. I've put one on the table. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just going to bring, give you some quotes here from yeah. some other engineering experts. This is from Dr. Rick Henry uh, yeah. of the University of Auckland, apparently Charles Clifton's colleague. He says, replacing the uh, existing uh, superstructure without causing massive disruption to the daily commuter traffic would be almost impossible. AUT professor John Tukey says it would be vastly expensive. Infra New Zealand CEO Stephen Selwood says he can't see an 18-lane harbour bridge well, being feasible. Well, you see, what is the solution? So uh, Auckland needs solutions. It doesn't need someone like Phil Goff to tell us it'll happen in 2030, maybe. We, we need to sort out a, another crossing. Mm. I've put it on the table, and uh, when I'm elected, I guarantee you we will be able to put a solution on the table you... sooner than later, rather than 2030. We'll give you the solution. Yeah, we'll give you the solution. Since the year 2000, the number of passenger vehicles coming across the Harbour Bridge hasn't increased, but the number of public transport uh, buses have... And the solution is not to have an 18-lane um, uh, harbour bridge mm. that brings congestion into the centre of town. When the cars come off the harbour bridge, where do they go into? They go into the centre of town that's already congested. The answer, as we've found with the Northern Busway, is through a public transport system. 53% of people coming from the shore to the city centre now come in it's by not bus. Working. Now, you know, the, 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 the engineers are right. Working. The people you've quoted are right. He talks about trains going over the harbour bridge. The gradient would be higher than trains can cope with. Okay. And, and you put a train over the Harbour Bridge and you don't have a railway line at the other side. But, but it's You'd true wipe that out. we still, at the moment, with, yeah. with all of the investment in, in, in infrastructure around public transport in Auckland, we still have major congestion we, we have, but if you listen to what the AA said in their survey, they said congestion mm. got massively worse mm. in 2015, 16 and 17, and now it's levelled off. Mm. Now, what we've got to do is provide much more. We've got 100 million passenger trips a year now because we've improved our bus services, we've got busways, we've got bus lanes, we're, we're putting no, the city no. rail link in that will double, look, the look, double the capacity look, if, of heavy rail. If, if, That's how you if, solve your if, problem, if, not if, by bringing more cars into was, the city. If Auckland was the nirvana that he said it was, people wouldn't be in gridlock on the northwestern, on the southern, on the southeastern, and on the shore. What about the light rail to the airport down Dominion Road? No, it's not happening on my watch. And the reason why it is is because, is because it's a slow rail to hell. It'll cause the uh, largest disruption possible. Have a look at what this yep. bloke's done on Key Street. 
Have a look what's happening down here on Nelson Street. You just can't continue to destroy communities uh, on the basis of a poor solution. But of course that's exactly what an 18-lane harbour mm. bridge would cause. You'd wipe out houses in St Mary's Bay and Northcote Point. That's not right. true. Wipe out neighbourhoods. It's a that's total fantasy. And what's more, it's totally dishonest, John. Because uh, uh, you know you'll never deliver oh, look, that. Fantasy. You know you will never deliver that, no. even if you've got the chance. OK, okay. I want to throw a couple of quick questions uh, at the both of you. Uh, John, I'll start with you. Yeah. Uh, this council has declared a climate change emergency. Do you support that? Yeah. Do you uh, agree that humans are responsible for climate change? Yes, I do. And what responsibility should the council take uh, for reducing... M multiple responsibilities, but um, you've got to have a total environmental policy, not, 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 just, annou no, hang on, not just announce that mm. you're going to play around with some electric cars, as this me has. But is, is an 18-lane harbour bridge consistent with a climate change? Well, you've, you say it's 18. At the moment, it's uh, five lanes either side, so it's 10 anyway. The issue, the issue is uh, I've, I've put two rail, two... Pedestrian, two cycling, right? So he, you can name those 18 right. fields. Okay, okay. Yeah. Uh, Ihu Martel, yep. what responsibility does, uh, does uh, local government have in resolving We've, we've taken a couple of areas in terms of responsibility. Firstly, uh, Otuatawa, the Stonefields area, mm. we bought some years ago 92 hectares. That's the most important cultural and heritage and geological area. And now we want to make sure that's managed to, to, to actually utilise so that. So, how do you resolve this, though? Okay, secondly, We've also got a block of land called the Rennie block. It's 8.9 hectares. We decided last week that we would change the zoning on that from future urban into public open space. Thirdly, what the people at Ihumatau <coughs> asked me to do was to try to facilitate the parties coming together and council moved the same resolution. That, mm. The day that we moved that resolution, I was on the phone to the Prime Minister. The next day we had a meeting with the mana whenua and with Fletchers. And following that, there's been a connection with the, the <coughs> protest movement. Okay. We have now got the King movement involved and they are the people who have the respect of both the protesters and the mana whenua, and they are best placed to work well, for a solution I, I know, according to Maori protocol. Some of them that, that, that there are people who would say, who, who are supporting the Ihumatau processes, who would say this is not a Tainui issue, no, this is not a look, Kingi Tainui not what the oh, leaders of the protest are my, saying. They say they respect King Eden. Yeah, can I um, have a contribution here? Look, um, that site is a, of national significance. Mm. It is a national heritage estate. It is like a Stonehenge uh, is to the UK. Uh, Stonehenge being uh, a protected site because of the indigenous mm -hmm. people. And um, there is a compromise uh, opportunity to be had there with the leadership uh, of central government and local government hand in hand. It is not a treaty settlement issue. Um, there have been a lot of porkies told about that. Uh, that is private land. It has never been part of a treaty settlement and as a consequence any settlement there by the Crown uh, mm -hmm. will not upset any relativities and that's a joke. Right. Yeah. I have a, one last question for you. This is one that I know many Auckland ratepayers will be concerned mm. about. Do rates go up? Do they stay the same? Are they reduced on your okay. watch? Well the first thing to say is that for the last three years we've had the lowest rate increase in any answer. large and, yep. and medium sized city. 2.5% compare that to the 9.7% that Hamilton is paying this year alone. We've set out in the long-term plan what the rates will be. They'll be 3.5% and that's what we'll stick so to. So go to 3.5%. I keep, I keep my no, promises. 2.5, right. I'll keep my promise this time. No, over time that's 10.5%. Uh, 
if you elect him, you go 18% north. It doesn't matter what Hamilton's paying. It doesn't matter what Wellington's paying. The capital value in Auckland at 18% going north, plus the stealth taxes. There are four stealth taxes. The Gulf, the Gulf petrol tax, right. so yeah. on and so forth. Load, load of rubbish. So, none of those, so none of those stealth all of them fully debated. And you know so that's the, not true, so the issue You is, shouldn't keep saying things so the issue, that you know aren't so, true. So the issue is you're going up 18%, Phil, and that's no, true. No, you, right. you'll, so you'll spend it, $10 million okay. on the bridge, but you'll, you, you won't you're you won't pay for any more well, this rates. Is a, this is going to be an interesting <laughs> the few weeks. at the bottom of the garden will pay <laughs> for I'm not your ATM. I'm not your ATM. All right. Thank you very much. Kia ora kōrua. Thank you very much for your robust Cheers. conversation Thanks. this evening. I can see there's Thanks, plenty Jack. more space uh, for, the, for these conversations to continue leading up to the local body elections. Let's see what Jenny has planned for us on tonight. Thanks, Jack. Tonight, a law change after the man accused of the Christchurch terrorist attack sent inappropriate letters from jail. Video images of a royal inside the home of convicted paedophile Jeffrey Epstein. The World Cup's just around the corner, but could it be empty cups for punters if licensing laws don't change? Plus, a fours a crowd. Did Neil Finn kick out a band member ahead of the Crowded House comeback tour next year? for all that and tomorrow's weather at 10.35. Thanks very much, Jenny. If you've got any space left in the show, I'm sure that Phil Goff and John Tamahiri would be happy to fill it for you. <laughs> hey, send us your thoughts. We're on Twitter at NZQ&A. You can post your views on our Facebook page or email us at Q&A at tvnz.co.nz. Don't forget the Q&A podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Up next... Yes, there will be a cost, but we've got to turn that into a positive in terms of our market position for all the goods that we produce and sell. Agriculture Minister Damien O'Connor reveals how much new freshwater environmental standards may cost Kiwi farmers. And the architect of Rogernomics. What does he make of criticism that his reforms only benefited the rich? It's not uh, the policies I put in place. It's the policies that uh, people like Helen and, and John Key did. No mai, hoki mai. Welcome back to Q&A. When Fonterra was set up 18 years ago, it was hoped the dairy co-op would become our Nokia, a world-class company that could scaffold New Zealand's economic success. But the shock news that Fonterra is expecting to post a loss of up to $675 million this year has many farmers and business commentators wondering what kind of future Fonterra faces. Agriculture Minister Damien O'Connor had a pretty blunt message for Fonterra's managers, past and present, when I spoke to him today. But we started with new freshwater environmental standards due to be announced in the next few weeks. And I asked how much complying with the new rules might cost farmers. Probably one or two percent in that order, um, and, and clearly any cost to a farming operation is not something farmers want. Um, but we've got to look at the long-term value, and the cost of not doing anything is far greater over time. There will be farmers around the country prickling at that number, though, knowing at the moment that so many of them are struggling just to keep their heads above water. Take this, for example. We know a third of dairy debt is held by farms which need a $6.20 milk solid payout just to break even. Are you concerned that these new compliance costs might push more farms under? Oh, look, we're concerned about any cost that um, put onto farming or any business across New Zealand, um, but some costs are essential, and, and improving the water quality across New Zealand has been widely accepted as something we must do, um, making sure that those costs can be absorbed by farming operations, and then ensuring they get more value for what we sell into the future is our objective as a government. More bleak news for Fonterra's shareholders and farmers over the last week or so. Are you of the opinion that the Fonterra experiment has essentially failed? 
No, the experiment hasn't. Some of the governance and some of the management has, and clearly some crazy decisions made over the years uh, that have now come home to roost. And I think the new board and new management at Fonterra are being upfront, they're being honest, they're writing down appropriately the, the mm. level of value that they have. And farmers should now look to their cooperative as saying, well, they're being upfront with us, they're being honest. Now let's see where the plan is for a better future. What about the old management? What do you think of Theo Spearing? Uh, look, it's good that he's gone. Uh, we can get on and improve Fonterra um, and get some better returns to farmers. Do you think he deserved that final bonus payout? Of course he didn't. No, ridiculous payment. That's um, something that the old board will have to, uh, um, you know, answer to. But maybe the new board shouldn't have in any contract for the CEO into the future. Well, broadly speaking, then, when you look at the, the salaries that Fonterra's management are receiving, are you satisfied with those, or do you think they should take a closer look at their own payments? Look, I think if the company performs, those salaries are well-deserved. But the fact is that they haven't been performing. Um, you know, they should all take a cut at the moment. Um, and until the company's back on a firmer footing, they have a new strategy that they're going to roll out, and hopefully that will mm. ensure more benefit for the farmers, for New Zealanders and for management. Will they take a cut? I'm not sure. Uh, that's up to, you know, the chief executive and the board to work through. The important thing is that the strategy they're developing is the right one for Fonterra, for the dairy industry and for New Zealand. Well, let's talk about strategy for a moment. You've been reviewing the Dairy Industry Restructuring Act. You've announced some changes uh, which give Fonterra a little bit more flexibility. But in lieu of this week's losses and the final results which are going to be announced for the financial year next month, do you want to go further? No, I think the, the bill that's about due to come to Parliament um, is fairly open. We've got an open mind to changes that might occur through the Select Committee, um, but we are offering Fonterra a bit more protection. It doesn't have to pick up uh, all milk. Um, it, it can put some requirements on the environmental standards, animal welfare standards of the farmers supplying. So we're offering more mm. flexibility to Fonterra, but ensuring there are protections for farmers you know, who are doing, dealing with a company that's still about 80% of our dairy industry. But it really is astonishing just to compare Fonterra with, with some of the, the alternative um, uh, companies in the market. So you take Fonterra at the start of last year, for example, the market valuation was $10.7 billion at the start of 2018. Today it's $5 billion less. A2, on the other hand, has going from being, gone from being half the value of Fonterra at the start of last year to about twice the value. So why not set Fonterra free? Look, the mistake of Fonterra that they didn't pick up and include A2 milk, uh, that valuation is through uh, a rod that Fonterra created for their own back. They've set up units. Units are traded by investors who are not farmers. Um, those unit holders haven't been getting dividends, so they've reduced the value of those units. That hasn't in itself mm. reduced the value of the company. The value of the company is, is what it can produce from the milk that the farmers supply into the value products. They haven't been getting it right, but hopefully they will into the future, and that will benefit each and every New Zealander because you know it's the single biggest exporter from our country. Let's talk about white bait. Of course, the white bait, has seized, uh, white bait season has, has begun for all parts of the country except for uh, the South Island's west coast and the Chatham Islands. The Conservation Amendment Bill has passed its first reading as well that seeks to protect some of the white bait fishery in New Zealand. Are west coasters who oppose those changes being unrealistic? 
No, look, the bill does nothing to ban whitebaiting at all in any part of the country. What it does set up is some protection for an indigenous species, or four or five of them, that are currently under threat. That threat is mainly from um, areas of spawning areas mm. uh, for, for the bait themselves. Um, but there's unknown uh, information around the amount that we catch every year, where it's caught, what time of the season, changing patterns. Um, and so the idea that we could carry on without any change into the future and protect the fisheries is completely naive. Look, we had a good meeting on the West Coast. Most of the West Coast whitebaiters understand that something needs to change. It's just that each and every one of them has a different view on what that should be. Some of your critics have suggested, though, that if, that if these changes come into law, the Minister of Conservation could essentially snap her fingers and at any moment ban whitebaiting on whatever river she likes. Is Look, that not the case? It's just National Party lies. And once again, they want to turn the West Coast into a political football. This is not about banning whitebaiting, but it is about a legitimate move mm. forward to offer some protection um, for Indigenous species. We have all sorts of protection yeah. for trout that are exotic, and we have nothing for whitebait. So it is a fair but, proposition but just that to we be can clear, Just to be clear on that, theoretically, though, they're right. Essentially, the Minister for Conservation of the day could say, that's it, no white baiting on this river, and there would be no allowance for consultation beyond no, that. The, the, the Minister can close down areas on conservation land that might affect a whole river, very unlikely, other than a few rivers in South Westland. Um, what this does allow is some flexibility to manage. Um, mm. Should the fishery get near to collapse um, to close, uh, you know, in a, for a season, um, a, a river. And I've had many West Coast whitebaiters after a poor season say, we should close down the season for a year or two. Now, that's just opinion based on very little fact. Mm -hmm. What I've said to the whitebaiters, and indeed the Minister has to get more cold, hard facts on the table so we know where the real threats are to the whitebait fishery. It is really important. It is a cultural um, uh, icon for many parts of New Zealand, not just the West Coast, but we do need to do something to better protect them, for, not just for us, but actually for future, future generations. Minister, does having the Green Party as part of your coalition government make it more difficult as the West Coast MP? No, look, I think uh, people have got to appreciate that, you know, we have about 80% in conservation land in our region. We've got eight national parks, spectacular place. The reason we've still got large amounts of whitebait down in South Westland is because we have huge areas of conservation mm. land. There's a greater appreciation of that. Sure, there are issues that we debate and I debate. Um, that's a good, healthy tension. Um, and we have a coalition coalition government that gets everything pretty much right in my view. That's Damien O'Connor. My interview with Sir Roger Douglas is next. The 1984 reforms marked a pivotal period in New Zealand's political history. Does he have any regrets? And what does he think of politics today? Kia ora te welcome back. The legacy of Roger Nomics, the radical economic and social reforms of the 1980s, still divides Aotearoa, at least if your views are anything to go by. As soon as we started promoting my interview with Sir Roger Douglas, there was a swift flurry of feedback from those who consider him a saviour and those who firmly believe he's a traitor to the New Zealand way of life. Sir Roger, I suspect, wouldn't be too bothered, having weathered the disapproval of those who despised his so-called neoliberal reforms nearly 35 years ago. I visited him at his home near Auckland to discuss his legacy, whether he had any regrets, and to ask what he makes of Jacinda Ardern's Labour government. 
They're through the jungle, mate. At 81, Sir Roger Douglas has no interest in gardening. Is this your handiwork, Sir Roger? No, not at all. My wife wouldn't let me near it. He's lived in the same family home for more than 30 years, since the sweeping economic reforms he pushed through as the fourth Labour government's finance minister. We were going backwards for nearly 30 years because of the controls that had locked the economy up to the point that it was only borrowing that kept it going. It's 35 years since those reforms of 1984. How would New Zealand look today if you hadn't introduced those reforms? A whole lot worse. I think if you look at the reforms, particularly between 84 and 87, uh, those reforms are still in place. Uh, despite a lot of uh, my former colleagues like Helen Clark and others uh, decrying them, they didn't change one of them. So they're still there and I think that's proof of principle uh, that they were quality reforms. How far would you have liked to have gone with those reforms? Well, in the end, I would have wanted to move into the social policy area. And it was really in, in that area where uh, David Longhi and, uh, you know, we parted company, as it were. But without a doubt, uh, by 1987, most of the economic reforms were either in place or were in the process of being in place. But we had not made any changes uh, to the social policy area, which was 80% of the budget. And most of those areas uh, were failing. What do you mean by those social policies? Are you talking about the privatisation of hospitals? I'm, talk sort of I'm talking about education, I'm talking about health, I'm talking about welfare. Um, no, it's about a lot about delivery. Um, um, the institutions which had originally been set up as conduits uh, to take government money and spend it on behalf of mm. consumers had taken on a life of their own and the consumer was being left out. David Long had a simple philosophy. Mm. His view was that unless the state actually provided the health care and the education and ran those institutions, some right-wing government could come along later on and wipe it. My attitude was uh, that individual people needed to make those choices for themselves. They needed to have the power to mm. do so. Do you have any regrets from that period? Well, of course, I would have liked... <laughs> I have a regret I would have liked to have done uh, what I believe still needs to be done. Because if you look at the issues I raised there, um, you know, another 30 years on, we're still in trouble and we're in a lot deeper trouble. And, it, it, look, we talk about inequality. Uh, we talk about all those things, and particularly the left, my old colleague, but they haven't got a clue how to solve it. There will be those, though, who say that neoliberal reforms, like the ones you introduced in New Zealand, have contributed to massive inequality around the world, that over the last 40 years inequality has just increased at an incredible rate, that it's led to the rise of populism. How do you answer those criticisms? I would say it's not uh, the policies I put in place. It's the policies that uh, people like Helen and, and John Key did. Where did their money go? It went to the rich. 
they, Helen Clark's decision to subsidise rich children into their secondary, into their university education, that was transferring money from the poor to the rich. Their decision, her decision to agree to Jim Anderton's uh, um, uh, help to big business. What about in a broader global context, though? Because because we've but seen inequality most, rise everywhere. Are you are you, are you saying that by subsidising no, university in, in the main? In the main, I'm saying that it's the left wing mm. who have handed out the privilege, and if they had left that money with low-income workers, they'd be better off. What do you think of the current political landscape in New Zealand? Not much. I don't think uh, really we're, we're going to make any significant changes. It's a tragedy. Uh, I can't see anything that's going to improve our productivity. And at the end of the day, we can say what we like, that we care for people, and all of us do, but unless we can lift our productivity in New Zealand, we're going nowhere. There's only been four or five years in the last 60 where our productivity has been in the top, you know, um, sector of the OECD. And that was in after the changes that I put in place and Ruth put in place. Otherwise, we've been the bottom of the heap. And unless we do something about changing that, uh, we're not going to get there. Why isn't ACT? Resonating? Um, I think largely because they're not sticking to their knitting. Um, I think we had uh, a philosophy that uh, if you go back to what we, where we started, Common Sense for a Change, we were saying that we had a new way of delivering in old areas like health education. The whole thing was based on helping the low income and the poor. And we said, these are the policies that you need to put in place if you're going to actually do something for the disadvantaged. And I guess they got trapped in a way, and I can understand it. They looked at who was voting for it. It's all the affluent people. So they target, started targeting you know, their message. Look, we got David is a very smart guy. but. He's trying to cover too much, and I'm not sure euthanasia is what a leader of a party should be advocating. Auckland City Council's a disaster. That should have been more efficient. Mm. That was never going to be. Last I checked, that the minister, mm? the minister who who pushed that reform through was an ACT Party leader. Yeah, but I didn't agree with it. I didn't agree with it. Today, Sir Roger Douglas still holds strong views on big government. I don't want some mad greenie sitting in Queen Street making my decisions around here. I'd rather have some local people here. Yeah. Do it. <laughs> You're not quoting me on mad <laughs> greenie, do you? <laughs> you and he has greenie? the space to take stock of his years in Parliament. How do you remember someone like Longy? Oh, David. Um, my regret is that he's not going to be remembered as a great Prime Minister. He's going to be remembered as an average Prime Minister who for a period of time got things done. That is a tragedy because he could have been a great Prime Minister. And for a period of time, his first year in office, he was a great Prime Minister. Um, he had the capacity, he had 
skills that, you know, were incredible, really. I remember taking a report to him one day, four pages, and he gets the report and he goes, Oh, that looks all right, Rods. And I thought, you haven't read that, you can't have. <laughs> so I thought, oh, I'll ask you a question about, well, you know, put it nicely. You damn well knew it better than I did, you know? <laughs> he, and he had that capacity. And for the first year when he was switched on, he, he was tremendous. Um, but I think he listened to the wrong people. And in a way, he lost his way. Sir Roger Douglas is pushing on, his passion for economic reform unabated. He's currently researching and writing a book with a new economic plan, which he believes would end inequality in New Zealand. Sir Roger Douglas talking to me from his home in Auckland. We've already had some feedback on that interview and the rest of the programme. You can hear some after the break. Kia welcome back to Q&A. Thanks for all your feedback this evening. There's been a whole stack. On our interview with Corrections Minister Kelvin Davis, Michelle MacDonald posted, shouldn't we be asking why Māori are in prison in the first place? And heaps of you have had views on our interview with Sir Roger Douglas. Among the feedback, Ngāti Pākehā Kuia tweeted, we only had a literal handful of Māori unemployed in the village we lived in up in the far north. After Rogernomics, we found out there was mass unemployment of mainly Māori in that area. The legacy lives on today. Stefan Olsen tweeted, unlike the current government, his government actually did things and changed the country for the better. We will continue the debate online. Tonight is up next. Thanks for watching. Nā mihi kia koutou i ngā karere. Thanks for your messages. Thanks to the Q&A team. Hey tērā wiki. We'll see you next Monday evening at 9.30. Q&A is made with the support of New Zealand On Air.